Well, I'm delighted to have with me today a very um, well-travelled man, not from East Clare, but living in East Clare. His name is Greg Dinner. Thank You're you. very welcome to Scarf Bay Community Radio, uh, Greg, and thank you very much for coming in. Well, thank you for having me. You're not an East Clare man. You're no. from Colorado. I'm, I'm from Colorado originally, yes. Yeah, and you grew up there, I presume? I grew up there, yes, but I've been uh, on this side of the Atlantic for quite a long time. But you did a lot in between then, that and now. <laughs> I did, I did, yes. So you studied in New York, in Paris, uh, that's London. That's right, that's right. And I know it sounds obvious what you studied, but I'm going to ask you anyway, what did you study? Uh, so my background was primarily in English and English literature, uh, but also modern art and romance languages to some degree in university. Oh. Kind of fell under David's tutelage. Mm -hmm. So it was a kind of very what we call top-end drama that um, I worked in in film as an executive. And then uh, I had the chance to work uh, on an Academy Award-nominated Norwegian film which helped me fall into screenwriting. Right. So um, I worked in, I, I turned into screenwriting uh, around the early 1990s. And um, I worked on this Norwegian film, and then I did a film called The Matchmaker, which was actually set in Ireland. Yes. Um, and I worked in, uh, started to move into television as well, mm -hmm. um, to some crime-type drama. Um, worked on a project called Shipwrecked and worked into other areas, other genres that interested me at the time. Well, was it a very glamorous life? Um, it's very you think political. think of it as a glamorous you, life. You think of it as glamorous, and I've worked with some really interesting people, mm -hmm. uh, filmmakers and talent actors. Um, but it is... Uh, it's not an easy life, and um, the glamour from the outside is there. Uh, to be honest... Uh, we're all we're working stiffs. So we all we do what we do. Um, it's a creative industries are funny because it's a lot of what I do has to do with ego, what's good and what's not yes. good, mm -hmm. um, which doesn't really mean anything. But the talent is there, and particularly the people who make things are are incredibly talented people. Mm -hmm. So as glamorous actors are actors, they they're just people. Um, yeah. yeah, you have cameras going off all the time, but. Um, is it glamorous, I suppose, from the outside more from the inside? From the inside, it's often painful. Yeah. Real life gets in the way, I it suppose. It does, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So you moved to London then. Um, I moved to London. So uh, I tell stories. I'll tell you how this came about. Do. Um, and really, my involvement in Ireland uh, comes about in 1977. Um, and in 1977, I was living in Paris, 76, 77, for a couple of years. Um, and we, uh, the, we, the young people I used to gather with, we used to congregate at a bookshop um, that some listeners will know. It's a bookshop called Shakespeare and Company. And Shakespeare and Company, the original incarnation, published James Joyce's Ulysses right. um, under Sylvia Beach. So that's why it's known. It's still... A bookshop that Amer particularly American young people go to, but young people from all over sort of are, are, are drawn to this bookshop. Mm -hmm. And my friends and I used to hang out, um, meet up on the sort of second floor. There were flea-ridden sofa beds that we'd sit on and <laughs> dusty shelves of books all over. And we'd talk about <clears throat> art and literature and poetry, as you do at that age yes. when you have dreams. 
Um, so in this particular spring day, I'd been away from, from Paris for a few months studying in London, and I came back. Um, and on that particular day, uh, the patron, George Whitman, the owner, came upstairs. He just hired a new shop manager, shop girl. George had a penchant for Irish girls. Um, and Scottish girls to uh, some degree, but particularly Irish girls who wore skirts. Right. And uh, he came I, I up hope with that doesn't mean what you're. No, it, it means it, he just like you know well yeah. well mannered, well dressed yeah. Irish girls. Mm -hmm. So um, he came upstairs. It was this girl's first day, and um, he was showing her around. Her name was Annie O'Sullivan, and uh, kind of introduced her to us, and we got a very cursory hello. And then she walked off. And when she walked off, um, I said to my friends, well, she's a right, uh, let's put it this way. I said, she's not very nice. Oh. Um, and to cut out of that story, but um, in, in a couple months, that Annie O'Sullivan and, I, O'Sullivan and I will celebrate our 44th wedding anniversary. <laughs> yes. So um, He Annie, was a man of taste. Absolutely. Yes. And I, she proved that she actually was very nice. Yes. So um, Annie was my ticket to Ireland and um, effectively my entry into Ireland in some ways. And Annie and I, when we left Paris, we lived in New York, um, where I finished university, and then we lived a little bit in Denver and moved to Los Angeles, where I got involved in the film industry. Okay. Um, but we didn't want to stay in Los Angeles, and we were very young, so we decided to move to London. That was in 1984, thinking it might be a year or two but things happened, and a year or two became more than 30 years. We raised our sons there. We had a mortgage. We had mm -hmm. cars and a mm -hmm. dog and what, all the trappings of that. Um, and that became our life. Uh, we lived there, as I say, for plus 30 years. We came back to Ireland a lot um, because Annie is from Port Leash, and uh, for all holidays we spent in Port Leash and so on. And we argued for a very long time about whether we should move back to Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, I was quite resistant for some time. But um, it was just time, and around 2014, we decided for a variety of reasons um, that we would look for a, what I thought would be a small cottage in Ireland as yeah. a second home. Holiday um, home. A holiday home yeah. is what we thought, at least what I thought. I think Annie had different ideas. <laughs> Um, and we, uh, we found a property here in East Clare, and uh, so moved back here, and then became really full-time residents around 2017. We took possession in 2015. Okay. But you had done a lot of work uh, before that in Ireland, hadn't you, with RTE? I had. I um, had done some work. I, I, uh, I was an executive, as I said, and I turned a screenwriter full-time around the beginning of the 1990s. And a lot of the work that I was doing began to gravitate towards a certain kind of drama we call top-end drama. Um, Genre-wise was factional, factionally backdropped and often uh, took place in war zones. Okay. Um, very hard to produce, very hard to finance, and very hard to write. And it took its toll on me. Right. Uh, it was just coming out of the Balkans period. I'd done a project set there, and it was not easy. And so I kind of needed a break, and I, I had an opportunity. RTE approached me about um, running all drama development at RTE in the mid-1990s, and I needed a break from writing. So I agreed to do that and um, joined RTE to run all their drama development in television um, and then run drama. Now, RTE hadn't been 
in drama really for quite a long time. Most of their drama was either bought in or they worked with BBC Northern Ireland and BBC Northern Ireland called the shots. Right. And they brought me in um, because I was an unknown quantity. There were several reasons they wanted someone like me uh, uh, to, to, to run a new form drama department. Um, so they brought me in and I was there for about two and a half years. Um, but I realized pretty quickly <laughs> that I'm a lousy executive <laughs> and that it's not what I should have been doing. Annie and I had thought about moving back to Ireland at that time, but realized it wasn't the right time. Our kids were at an age where they needed to continue with the schooling they were doing okay. in London. Mm -hmm. So after about two and a half years, I left RTE. I made a lot of good friends there, mm -hmm. but I needed to return to writing. And so what, what sort of stuff were you involved in there? I mean, you told me what type of stuff. But at RTE? Yeah. RTE, we made a show called... Uh, uh, making the cut is what we eventually cut uh, called it, and that was its first homegrown drama. Okay. Um, for quite a long time, um, and that was the big show we developed and produced. Uh, we did another project called Selkie that was uh, Silky that was a, a co-produced project with France. It was the time of the um, uh, seventeen. So this was. Uh, 1998. It was the 200th anniversary of 1798. Okay. We made a drama about that. Um, and RTE <laughs> was very interesting. I had a lot of money to spend uh, for developing projects, uh, and I did spend a lot of money, but I was always interested to see if they would actually make them, and they didn't oh. after I left. Mm. Um, so it took another five, six years before RTE began to develop its own drama again. Right. The only thing I didn't do at RTE is in drama, I didn't work with the soaps because I don't work in soap. Okay. So those were already up and running at mm -hmm. the time, mm -hmm. um, Fair City and such, and we let we let others make those, or those I did. things. Um, um, when did you start? You said that you were always interested in writing. When did you actually start writing your novels? Because you mm. you wrote a trilogy of of mysteries. Um, I wrote two. Yeah, I. Oh, two. I thought there was there, three. There, there, we'll see if there'll be a third. Um, okay. <laughs> Yet so to come. I my career was in screenwriting. Right. Almost all my career, unless I was an executive, and I also taught um, at taught screenwriting at tertiary level and film ethics. And I did that most of my career until I came to Ireland, and I'd always wanted to write in fiction, particularly long-form novels. Mm -hmm. um, and when I came to Ireland, my screenwriting career was somewhat winding down. This is a little bit further away from the mainstream of the industry, certainly out of the UK. Yeah. The industry here is very small. Um, so we took possession of the house, as I say, in 2015. In 2016, I thought, I'd really like to sit down and write, see if I can write long form, write a mm -hmm. novel. And what I did was I had been working on a series out of Los Angeles that I wrote, um, and I had the novelization rights uh, to, to adapt it f as fiction. And I decided to adapt the the pilot episode as a novel to see what would happen, Okay. to see if I could do it. Um, so I wrote that in 2016 and really enjoyed the process. And that book was called The Murmuration of Starlings. Murmuration um, of Starlings. That's right. Fabulous title, yeah. That's its title. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed doing that. Um, it was an adaptation, as I said. So I decided about two years later that I'd do a follow-up as an original, but of the same material. Um, okay. And these books are... 
they're slightly detective mystery stories. Um, they're quite noir-esque. Um, they take place in the deserts of the southwestern the United States. And their backdrop is is Native American mythology and folklore to some okay. degree, but they deal with issues of darkness and light. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. They're 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 tough novels. Um, so I really enjoyed writing both of those and went out with both of those two books at the time and had thought still think of making them into a limited series of of with the, following this particularly this one character. Right. But all of that time. Um, there had been a story in the background that I had really wanted to write, and I didn't know how to write it. I wasn't sure how to approach it. Um, but after I finished the second of the what are called the Shadow Wolf Chronicles books, um, I decided to turn. I, I found a way to to write this book, and so I, that's what I've been working on the last couple of years. That book is called The Requiem for Hania, and hey, that's tell us out tell now. us how that came about, Greg, because it's yeah. very very interesting. So a Requiem for Hania is, uh, like a lot of my work, it's inspired by a true story and something that happened. In 2000, really in 2013, um, I'd gone to a workshop in film for writers and directors and producers and actors in Berlin. And I was working there and I became very friendly with a, an, an actor, actress, I should say, from, from Poland. Um, and that was in 2013. In 2014, she came to visit Annie and myself in London. And she was downstairs one day, and I was teasing her. It's my sense of humor. I was teasing her a lot. And I said, you know, you are so crazy. You are so neurotic. You're like my family, and therefore, you should be Jewish, because I'm both. I'm nice. Jewish, and I'm extremely neurotic, probably the neurotic part more than anything. So I was teasing her. I said, you should be Jewish. You know, you're just crazy. Anyway, that was a big joke. And um, about two months later, a couple months later, we were in Naples or Sicily, I can't remember. And my phone rings. And it's my friend. um, She kind of wants to retain anonymity at this point, so we'll call her Kay. And Kay rang me from Warsaw, and she said, I have something to tell you. She said, I'd gone to the Baltic see on holiday with my family to celebrate my grandmother's 90th birthday. And I was telling them about you, she said, and telling them how you'd been teasing me. And my grandmother got very angry. How could he say such a thing? That was a terrible thing to say, her her grandmother said, and my friend Kay explained it was a joke. He was just teasing me. It was all a joke. So the next morning, her grandmother came in and said she had something to tell all the family. And her grandmother announced that, in fact, she was Jewish. And she'd been in the Warsaw Ghetto. She had escaped. She changed her name. She changed her identity, everything about her. And she never told a soul. She never and did told... this girl, your friend, did she realize she was Jewish? Nobody did. My the goodness. grandmother never told anyone, not her, the, her daughters, not her grandchildren, not the state, no one until that moment. Because was that been the legacy her. of the history? Was yeah, that, yeah, that's, that's mm-hmm. because of what had happened yeah. to her. And so at that point, I got very silent, very quiet. And I said, Kay, it's no longer a joke. Um, because by Jewish law, A, this means you are Jewish, but um, there are things that you should really know and find out. From your grandmother, we all know the stories of the Warsaw Ghetto. I said, in fact, we don't, and I didn't, but I thought I did. 
And I said, you need to talk to her. You need to find out as much as you can because before the Warsaw Ghetto, your grandmother had a life, um, came from people, had an identity, and it's part of who and what you are, so you need to find that out. So in any event, I'll, I'll slightly leave this story there, um, but that began to obsess me for years, partly that story. And then there's another story as well. When I met Annie, as I said, um, in Paris in 1977, before Annie joined, started work at the bookshop, Annie had been an au pair. In the family she'd been an au pair for, the little girl was two years old. The parents were architects. The mother was German Catholic. The father was Jewish and Polish. And his story interested me because he had left Poland in 1968 um, to, go into, to, to go study in Paris and do his architectural work there. And when he left Poland, um, this was in fact, and I, I learned later, was a time of a lot of uh, purges in the Polish government in 1968 and, and very anti-Semitic period. Yes, I wasn't aware of that until yeah. I read it in, uh, yeah. you know. So yeah. when he left Poland, he was not allowed to go back until 1989 when the wall fell down. And then he was able to go back, but that, during that sort of 20-year period, never saw his family, couldn't return there. His grandfather, who in fact had been a rabbi, died. His, I believe his father died as well, and he couldn't go. So I was quite interested in what was going on in Poland at that time. I'm always very interested in politics. And I wanted to try and find a way to marry his story with the story of my friend Kay's grandmother and what happened in the ghetto. Mm -hmm. And both stories, particularly the ghetto material, really obsessed me for four or five years. Um, my friend didn't want me to write her grandmother's story, rightly, um, but I wanted to do something about that world and okay. to follow ideas about identity. I just didn't really know how to do it. But then for a variety of reasons, I finally found a way that I could link these two stories as well as the present day, and that link was music, um, which became the link of the book, A Requiem. And so uh, I started to write this book uh, two, three years ago, and recently finished, and the book comes out next week. Um, yeah, I, I, I haven't read it, hmm. so I can't understand what the link, the music, explain the music link to me. How does that work? So... To explain why the music became so important, as I say, I wasn't sure what would link these stories together. But um, about, three, about three years ago now, my father passed away, and I was in the States, and he was in hospital, because I was jet-lagged going back and forth between yeah. Ireland and there. I used to sit up all night in the hospital and listen to music over and over, and, and, and one, one composer in particular really drew me. And, I was, and it, it, that became really interesting to me. And it suddenly twigged that I could use music and the ideas of music to tie different sections of this book together. So the book is not structured in chapters. It's structured as music. It's structured oh. at, with a prelude and then okay. four movements in a coda. That's right. how it's... And that, that structure is actually tied into the plot itself. Okay. Um, but th there's dialogue. And there's, oh, there's yeah, dialogue, yeah. yes. Yeah. It's just that music is in the background. So in, the, in, in terms of the movie, it really follows three characters. The first character is a young woman who ends up in the Warsaw Ghetto mm -hmm. and how she survives. Um, and the stories 
of what she goes through are largely based on truth. Okay. And they're very tough. And one of the things that keeps her going and is involved with her family is music. Um, one aunt particularly is, is a musician. And so it's following her a little bit. And then the next section of the book, which is set in 1968, follows a composer, uh, a young male composer at the Warsaw State School of Music in 1968. The politics are in the background, but music is his life. Real or are your character the char- in the character's character, life? Yeah. Um, the music he, he pursues is, is, is quite real, but okay. as a, he's a musician, as yeah. I say, as a composer. So music's very important into that section. And then the final two sections, or the movements of the book, follow a, a third character in 2006 to 12, trying to understand her own grandmother's journey and how these are tied together. I don't want to give plot away too much, but it also begins to fall into music is at the center of it and ultimately ties it all together at the end of the book on certain aspects of music. So the book is structured as if it were a musical composition in a way. Music is in the background. Um, In some notes on a website I talk about I was constantly listening to music while writing this book and what those pieces are and why they're so important. Music is very often referred to, and partly in the way I write, but there's a lot of repetition in the book. There's references to music, and that's done specifically because it is structured as if it were a piece of music, a requiem mass. And it covers quite a period too, doesn't it? Yes. It starts in 1938, and then the war began in 1939, and the ghetto was created in 1939 in Warsaw. So it goes from 1938 to 1943, more or less, and then it jumps to 1968, and takes place in 1968, and then it jumps again to 2006 to 2012, okay. following three characters who don't know they're connected until you find how they are connected. Okay. Three generations. Historically, is it pretty accurate? It's very accurate. Uh-huh. So there are historians um, out there who would be very interested in yeah, the Yeah, your... as I said, I thought I knew a lot about the Warsaw Ghetto. I didn't. Yeah. So um, the stories about both what happened in the Warsaw Ghetto and what was going on politically somewhat in the World War II, but definitely around Warsaw, those are, that's all based on fact. Um, and a lot of the stories of what happens to this girl are based on fact. Mm-hmm. And then the politics of 1968 um, are you know, constantly referred to, and that's all based on fact of yeah. what happened. It was, as I say, it was a time of purges. It was a time of protest, like all over the world at yeah. the time. It was specific to... Poland, Warsaw and Poland, what was going on there and the process that happened there. Um, and then the government clamped down. So that all is factual. Did I read that about 30,000 Jews left Poland at that yeah, time? Yeah, after, after World War II, in Warsaw, in World War II, in the ghetto, there were originally about 450,000 Jews in the ghetto. Um, of those... Almost none survived. They were taken to Treblinka and exterminated. Mm. Most of them, or they died in the ghetto. So um, at the end of the war, there a, a number of, of, of the Jewish population from Poland, who had originally been from Poland, had made their way to this what was then the Soviet Union, and they returned to Warsaw at the end of the war. Warsaw 
itself was completely decimated. There was no Warsaw at the end of the war. Mm -hmm. Warsaw, um, in fact, the United Nations considered moving Warsaw to a different place. There was nothing left. And people came back, um, including about 30,000 Jewish population, to literally rebuild Warsaw from nothing. Warsaw was built between 1946 and 1950, 51. The way Warsaw was rebuilt is there were some uh, paintings by a painter named Conoletto from the 18th century that showed what Warsaw looked, looked like. like. yeah. And that's how they rebuilt, from these paintings, that's how they rebuilt the old city of Warsaw. It just didn't exist anymore. My goodness. <laughs> a lot of the Jewish population that came back, as I say, many from, most have been decimated in 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 Poland itself, but so a lot had served in the armed forces of the Soviet Union during the war. And they came back and entered into the upper echelons of the government. And at that time in Poland, there were probably still 30,000, this is after the war, 30,000 Jews who were living in Poland. After 1968, when these purges took place. And a lot of the purges were geared towards the Jewish population, but they were political as much as... They used anti-Semitism as an excuse. And after 1968-1969, 3,000 Jews remained. The rest left. 3,000? Yes, out of 30. Um, So there was effectively no Jewish... Very small Jewish population, and now it's it's a very, very small Jewish population in Poland. They immigrated... Greg, it sounds absolutely fascinating. I hope people will go out and buy and read your book. It's to be launched in hardback on the 18th of this month. That's only next week or very shortly. But the paperback is to be uh, launched on the 19th of April. But there's a reason for those two dates. That's right. The 18th of of January in Warsaw, in the ghetto, began what was known as the Second Oxion the Germans came in and they were going to empty the ghetto. Um, and for the first time, this is in 1943, for the first time, the Jewish population that still remained there began to fight back. So, and that, that's, a, that's an event in the book um, mm-hmm. that's described. It's a dramatic point. So the Germans on January 18th, they entered and after a couple of days they left. And they left the remaining population there. Until the 19th of April, which is the date the paperback is released. On the 19th of April, the German Nazi forces re-entered the Warsaw Ghetto. By then, the Jews who were there had been able to arm themselves a little bit. They dug bunkers and hidden places. Mm -hmm. And, um, in fact, that became known as the uprising of the Warsaw Ghetto. And it lasted for a month um, that the Jewish fighters who were there were able to survive until they were completely destroyed. So that lasted for a month, and that began on April 19th in 1943. So two very significant dates. May I wish you the very, very best with the book, Uh, Greg. I hope it becomes well-read and very popular, (laughs) and I hope you make a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) That I don't know, but I hope you No, no, I'm being facetious. But thank you very much for coming in, and perhaps you'll come in again and talk to us uh, about... A pleasure other things. Thank you very much, Greg. Thank you. Thank you, Geraldine.